<clears throat> that's Dan Park. He's one of our elders, amazing guy. And uh, Dan, you should be speaking up here. I mean, oh my gosh. We, you spoke at man camp uh, a couple years ago, and I was like, what is that guy doing sitting in that chair? He should be right here, Dan. We love you. We do thank you for everything you do and the heart you bring to our church. If you don't know Dan, you should know him. You will never leave church feeling bad about yourself. I have preached a couple bad messages. I know. It doesn't happen, you think. But then afterwards, Dan will just come right alongside and encourage me because he can literally see my, my smile go like this by the end of the service. So, uh, Dan, you have a great gift. Actually, your gift is the closing part of this message, and it's an inspiration, I think, for our church and an example. So, if you're new, I'm Ryan Grable. I'm the lead pastor here. If you're new, I want to welcome you. If a friend brought you, we're so glad that they did. And uh, you will find yourself in the middle of a very, uh, it's been a long series so far, and it's on the book of Hebrews. If you don't know that book, it is, um, boy, where does it line out? It's at the very end of all of Paul's epistles. It is, uh, cons because some people don't know who wrote it, most people don't, or really no one does, except for God, um, that it, it has kind of a mystery behind this book. When you read this book, and if you're not familiar with the Bible at all, this is in the New Testament of the Bible. And when you read it, it doesn't read like any of the other epistles. Uh, they, it will read very differently to you. It's very, very dense. Uh, we would call that theologically. and But presents the best case of any of the scriptures for someone to read and understand who Jesus is, why he came, what he did with his authority, and why living for him is the best thing that you could do for the rest of your life because of the promise that he gave. That's the writer's intention behind this book, and it's as relevant as it was then to those people who needed it. Um, when you look at the history of around, surrounding this book, it is to a people who were discouraged, who were frustrated, who were scared, who didn't know if their faith was going to carry out what it promised, and, and, and really to a struggling group of people, so much so that the writer gets word of it, who is probably pastoring that church, doing work elsewhere, and says, I've got to write a letter to my people. Because you know, we, we don't fully understand what it means to be persecuted at a physical level, financial level for your faith. Other countries do, and we maybe know people in those countries. But for us here, it's been, it's been a privilege to have freedom in practicing our faith. Then it was not happening. They were getting pressure from the Roman Empire, and they were getting pressure from the established Jewish uh, 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 sacrificial system that they grew up in. So now, I don't know if you've ever felt this way where you feel like you're in limbo. You feel like, uh, I have this faith I've chosen, and it's, 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 it's a blind faith, and, and that's what faith is. You're literally walking not by sight, but by trust. And that you also have the real world in front of you all the time, real world temptations, real world old life calling you back type of thing, real world struggles. And you're in this kind of limbo of like, oh, man, it's hard to see my faith clearly. It's hard to put my faith 
there. These people understand that struggle like you understand that struggle. And so I think it's just one of the best books. It's written like a sermon, if you don't know, because it is a sermon. When I was studying for this, the very first thing that came to my mind about the main theme of this section that we're going to cover, and it's a very big section that I'm going to cover, so you're going to be a little freaking out, but don't worry. It's three chapters in one message. And the reason why is because of the way this three chapters is themed. He's, if I'm a speaker and I know something that we're generally familiar with and I assume that you know it, I'm going to just say it briefly and you're going to pretty much know what I'm saying because we all kind of know the same thing. And you're like, yeah, yeah, of course. But if I have something that is new, that we're breaking ground in, I am going to take my time to make sure that we understand it from this angle, and we understand it from this angle, and we understand it from this angle, and so we eventually then all collectively understand it. And so that's why these three chapters can be taught in one sermon, because it mattered to them the ground that was being broken. And it's interesting to know if you, if you really want... A, uh, a theological lesson in ancient Levitical practices. But for us now today, the principle matters the most. And so that's what I'll be pulling out in this. So don't, don't think I'm reading three chapters here and don't grab your phone and start thinking, now I've got to find something to do. You should take notes because there's, <laughs> there's some good stuff here and here. When I was writing in, I was thinking about the main theme, which will be my title in a minute, but like uh, the idea behind it and, and, and he's putting across this ridiculous thought um, that seems obvious but people still do it and it's like this I was thinking about it um, have you if you if you've ever been to Paris Hotel in Las Vegas do you know what I'm talking about Let's, I just want to take a note of all the sinners who've been to Las Vegas at Paris Hotel. That's really what this is about. There's no sermon here. Uh, but I've been there, and I, I love the themed hotels in Las Vegas. They're very, very fun. But if I returned from Paris Hotel, and you were telling me, oh, I, I'm planning next summer to take a trip to Paris, and I'm going to get an idea of the Parisian lifestyle. And, I, and I'm going to get an idea of like the, the Eiffel Tower and the Arc and, 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 and all of the Louvre and all these wonderful things. I'm going to get a great idea of it. And I told you, <laughs> you don't even need to go. Just four hours away <laughs> is a destination. And they have something that Paris doesn't have. Gambling everywhere. And if you want to, you can go to Italy, to Caesars. It's incredible. You would look at me, you would laugh. You would tell me like, oh, this poor guy. This poor guy. Like, no, 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 literally. You would get the full experience if you went to Las Vegas. You would say, you're crazy. You'd say, no. Uh, that's a version of. That's a copy of. And it is not the best copy of its original. You are sadly mistaken, Ryan. When I was a kid, the greatest experience that I, that I think I remember as a kid is we went to Orlando, and it wasn't Disney World, even though it was great. It wasn't Universal Studios. It was when my parents took me to medieval times. 
When I went to medieval times, I was like, whatever this is, yes. And when I moved here and I saw there was one in Buena Park, I was like, God, thank you. I, I tell my kids about medieval times all the time. They're like, Dad, that's like ridiculous. I watched the cable guy just for the medieval times part of the movie. I love medieval times. But if I told you, guys, when I'm sitting there, and I'm rooting for the Red Knight. And I've got my goblet and my little uh, flag. It, it, it's just like how it was in the days of the Dark Ages. It's just like how Camelot must have been. There's no difference. You would then again laugh at me. And I think that this is what the writer is going to try to, he's prompting his audience to, 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 to kind of question the silliness of what they're doing, serving a copy of a human best at best interpretation of heavenly things. And, and continuing to do that, even though they have an opportunity to take the flight to Paris or to travel back in time or to, in this case, to actually experience what heaven has to offer directly, unfiltered, unadulterated, right to you, no human interpretation, just God. And so he is pulling the contrast for them so they can see it. Uh, the first section, and if you're going to read these three chapters, the easiest way to do it for just maximum comprehension uh, without getting lost in the weeds is to read the very first five verses, a few verses peppered throughout, and then the closing verse that is very practical. The rest of Hebrews from here, after we finish this message, will end the theological uh, doctrinal instruction, and it will get into more practical things the last couple chapters. And, but the point of it all, right, this is what he's trying to say. The point of it all in this first section is this, Hebrews 8.1, is, is that um, not, I'll just read it for you. Now the point in what we are saying, so here he comes. This is why I've been saying everything I've been saying before. The point of it all is this. We have such a great high priest, right, and one who is seated, so if you've missed the prior couple weeks, Jesus serves in a role that people who high priests would serve until they're about 50, retire, and they couldn't continue to serve, and they were elected. And the hope was that you had a competent high priest because how he did the sacrificial system in that day, which is irrelevant to us now, but very important to them, their whole life depended on how good that high priest was. So there was a tremendous amount of nervousness that you didn't get the one, because it was genealogical, so like you didn't get the one that was kind of the screw-up son. You know what I mean? You know, the, the son that comes in and starts to run the company to the ground, right? That's what you were hoping for. There was a tremendous amount of nervousness around it because it, your blessing from God, your status and forgiveness of sins... Just past, not current or present, just past, was up to that priest. And so he says, we have a great high priest who is seated at the right hand, the throne of the majesty in heaven. Now, he is pulling the difference. So we have a great high priest, right, who is perfect. And not only is he's not working, he's seated. 
meaning, and also he's seated next to God. Now, if you read the Old Testament, there's lots of imagery about the throne room of God, and they never saw someone seated next to him. So this is important that he is seated. He is not working. He is in rest. He is stationary. At rest at the right hand of God, a place of authority. A minister in the holy places. There was the holy of holy in the temple. And then there is the holy place in heaven. The temple is, which we'll get into, a copy of what is actually in heaven. In a much, much, much less greater copy. Uh, if you look at the temple worship too... I think God's throne room is in, in heaven is less complicated than what we tend to make it because the original tent tabernacle that was set up wasn't so complex, but it began to become more complex. And so when human hands get involved, they make the distance between God more difficult. So we just know that Jesus is seated in this place that everything else has been a copy of. And it says this, um, in the true tent, that the Lord set up, not man. Oof, he's laying some groundwork here. God did this. It's the true tent. You did your best. But this is where Jesus is in the true tent. And now his place is very important because he is in the holy place. No priest could stay in the holy place, but for a few minutes they tied a rope to his leg to pull him out in case he died. Like this is a very different way of being in the holy place. It says, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for the priest also to have uh, something to offer because that priest has sinned himself and is offering it as well because he is also sinful. This is why Jesus as a high priest is different. And he'll get into why Jesus as a sacrifice from his own blood instead of the blood of goats and lambs is very different because he's perfect and eternal. And so it, it's complicated in a theological sense when it comes to the practice, practices of Judaism. But the concepts are still the same for us who may not practice that. And he's saying that it's, 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 it's perfect. It was offered. It was perfect. Verse 4. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Now he's drawing some lines here. If he was still here, like the disciples begged him to stay, don't go, we need you here, he, he wouldn't be a priest, the kind of priest we need. He would be what they've had. This is something new. And he goes on to say he would not be the priest at all, but since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, they serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. I love that phrase. A copy and a shadow of heavenly things. It, they do their best, but God presents the best. And they're struggling with really kind of staying with the copy. The shadow of the much, much, much less better version. The much less secure version. The one that, that, that your sins have to be atoned for every single year. And sometimes every single like week. He offers something much, much better. I think it's adorable when a four-year-old will try to paint a picture of the Mona Lisa. It's very cute in that crayon. It's adorable. 
And if it's not your kid, it's not the most prized possession. It's just like, that's, oh, wow, they've got a little bit of talent there. I think I can make out an eye, like, right? But if you were to sit in the presence of the real Mona Lisa, if it was presented here, I bet you you'd feel a little different. And it's kind of weird how something of such great value, because it's an original, and its value is so high and priceless, that some awe comes over you, would it not? Would you not look at it and study it? Would you not just kind of bask and like, wow, I'm seeing something that's very rare. I am observing an original. And if you had the two next to each other, I, I know you'd be like, that, that's cute. Uh, wow. And this is what he's pulling in this difference. You have a very small concept of what is greater. And to just put your gaze on the four-year-old's drawing and miss what is right here in front of you, it would be the absolute tragedy of it if we're just focusing on the copy of it. So he's pushing this forward. Harder and harder and harder. And he will eventually come to his conclusion and a challenge for us. So let's pray and then we'll get into it. God, I ask as we look at, at this uh, section of Hebrews, I ask that it has the same impact on our hearts as it did these people back then in many generations since. I ask God that this, this section of this idea of copy and shadow and real and what we can put our trust in, God, becomes very real in our heart, that we become very secure in that reality, that, God, that we walk out of here knowing um, who we are and who you are to us in Christ, what you did for us. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> the sermon, I think, too, up to this point, if you don't know, it, we've gotten to this place, uh, and I'll bring you through it super, super fast, so you, won't even, you, you should go back and listen if you missed it, but you don't need to, because I'm going to just help you. One, the, it, it brought us, the, the writer is bringing us in his sermon flow. Here's his flow. Jesus is what you've been looking for. We all relate to that. Jesus is what you've been looking for. It's why you're here. You were looking for something that you couldn't find, and you found it. Or it found you. His, and he goes into then his, his credentials. He starts to list his credentials of who he is. How great his authority is. Why it was so significant. His credentials. That he lived amongst us. So he understands us. But yet he is God. And so his credentials become very valuable in it. So we put our trust in those credentials. I have this thing where I'll tell my, I'll hear something really interesting on a podcast or I'll read an article and then I'll tell my wife almost like it's something I've come up with. Do you know, do you know what I'm talking about? I'll tell her like, did you know that blah, 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 blah. And you know, and this is, this is how this works. And she'll be like, okay, how do you know that? And she'll start questioning me on it, and then I'll, and, and I don't know the answers, and I'll say, oh, no, 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 I learned this from such and such from MIT. He's a professor there, highly, know, highly regarded, and she'll be like, oh, okay, well, interesting, well, t t then tell me more. She doubted me, rightfully so, but then I cited this expert, and then suddenly she becomes more interesting. This is why he's citing the, the credentials of Jesus. Otherwise, it's just a good idea. 
And then we have God's shalom. He starts to tell us, if you understand Jesus' credentials, you understand what he's capable of doing, what he did for you, and then you can understand actually the rest that God is bringing you into his shalom, universal harmony. You actually in, if you can use the word flow, with what God is doing, which we've been disjointed for so long. But now you're in rhythm, harmony. It's a beautiful thing. You're in the seventh day rest after creation. Now, whether you know it or not. Now, that's your reality. Never before has that happened. But now it is for them. It's his security. It's rest, safety, a harbor. And then he goes in to say, so with that, let's put, our, let's put confidence in this. There's reason to have confidence, and in that confidence gives you freedom. And we use this example of like when you're in a relational and you have a relational insecurity, insecurity that it, it, it becomes a troublesome like time when you're together. But if there's confidence in the relationship, there's trust and there's security in it, it's freedom. You don't have to be like, why are they coming home so late? Oh, what are they, well, I wonder what they're up to. Like, you don't have to do that. You are free. You have a freedom with that. And then, then he goes into this part before he gets into the section we're in now, which is, hey, then with this confidence, draw near. We always want to run when we feel like we're unworthy, don't we? We always want to hide. And we want to hang our head low, duck. It's like whenever somebody's celebrity gets in trouble, they disappear for a year. You know, and I get it. It's, it, it's hard to be shamed. And we do that to ourselves. God, You're going to God finally and be like, okay, God, I'm going to tell you. I did this. Oh, and God's like, I appreciate what you're saying, but I don't really remember it. I don't know what you're talking about. Do you know that that's what's happening? Because he said he remembers your sins no more. He will not hold them over you, hold them against you. But we need to confess it for ourselves. We need to bring it. But if you think that that's what's going to bring you into heaven is by confessing a sin post-Christian, post-Christian, then you're wrong. But you need to do it. You heal yourself by confessing to one another and to God. But he is like, yeah, I don't know. I've, I've kind of taken care of that. But I love it that you're acknowledging it. So draw near to him because you can if it was based on your merit, I wouldn't draw near to a God who possesses love and judgment in the same moment in perfection. I wouldn't draw near without Christ. But that you do have it. He says, draw near. So I titled this message, Beyond the Shadowland, <clears throat> because of how he used this phrase, a shadow and a copy. He's asking them to move beyond the shadow land of things. The things that are just a mere copy. And go into the true reality. And I would say the thrust of this is to move our security beyond the shadow land into the true reality of heaven. Of which you currently live in now, but might not fully understand or know or believe. But it's there. And I'd say the goal of my message is this. Is one, to change your perspective. To change the course once you change that perspective. And to set a new course. <laughs> I, this is a really morbid way to say this, but all of us, you know, all have the same destination, right? There will be the last breath, and then it will be done. And I, I, I know you're going to walk out thinking, 
You know what I heard at church today? I'm going to die. <laughs> That's how we all have the same destination. No one will avoid it. The destination on our GPS all goes to the same place. How you go in that journey is what he's trying to set the course differently. And we have to have that course changed, our perspective. If you have a full understanding of what that destiny looks like, who you are in heaven currently now, heavenly citizenship, and who you are currently when you stand before God in Christ, and what it will be to be in the throne room of God, that you can draw near to him anytime he is with you at all times. If you have that as that's what my destiny looks like, at the, at the time when we all meet there, then would we not chart our course of our life a little differently with that perspective? Would we not say, you know what, I'm going to take this really long detour down the valley of hell and, and then back and then go back and then go back and then get close and then come back. Sometimes my GPS, I want to throw it out the window, which would be my phone, which would be fine. And, and I just am like, why did you take me here? I know where I need to go. I've been this way, but you're taking me here. Why? And sometimes it's, it's cruel. And, and I think Google hates me. But, you know, it, it, it's frustrating when you're off course. But we do it to ourselves all the time, even though we know the destination in our life course. It should settle to not have to be so much in this world at the cost of everything. To not have to give up everything that we, that we should care and be near to for something that is going to pass away. To not make the biggest thing in the world, like whatever issue we're dealing with when we know the heavenly perspective. There's a great security that comes with that, that, courts, that charts our course a little differently, I think. And, you know, I think the question is, is how, how do you chart the course of your life knowing this true reality? How do you do it? You know, um, I was thinking back and I was thinking like, oh, yeah, OK, th this is kind of what this reminds me of a little bit. When I think of the, the, the idea of um, knowing something that's so profound and true. And then how did I look at it in my past in, in my past? Because I've found myself saying this before, and I don't know if you have. Man, if I only knew this when I was younger, I would have done things so much differently. Do you know what I'm talking about? If I only knew what I knew now, I would have lived differently. I would have made different choices. I would have worried less, and I would have understood what really matters. Do you know what I'm talking about? Ever been there? And this is the type of thing that the writer wants to stop them from doing because he's saying, actually, what you need to know is you have this now. So, so you're not going to be able to look back and say, if I only knew this then, only pre-Christ can you look back then. But he's saying to believers, like, if you only knew this now, you know it now. Don't have that story at the end of your life. You know it now. You possess it now. This isn't something we're going to look back on and say, oh, I, I, I just never knew it. Yeah, you do. You know it, the truth. And he's trying to, to redirect them that you possess this reality. Don't be someone who says, if I only knew now. You know it now. You have it. I love this metaphor, though, because it's really important for the human experience, I'd say. 
We see some of our favorite stories are trying to put in perspective of don't be someone who has to say, I have to get to the end to wish I did it differently. Uh, it's a Wonderful Life. I'll throw these three movies out. It's a Wonderful Life, The Family Man, Christmas Carol. These are really good examples for today's world. That is the, the, the driving home the point that, that the character finally comes to and says, boy, if I only knew that, I would be different. And they get the opportunity to be different. This is what the writer is calling them to. You don't have to go through that journey. You know it now. And, and, and it's something that in our human way, I get it. But in a spiritual way, we, we possess it. And we should throw ourselves into that trust because you know something now, I think this is the perspective that he's writing from and he's trying to move them into. And, and I, I think it's this. He's asking them this question. And I was thinking about this myself. If you realize that Christ did what he did and who you are in him. And, and, and let me explain what that means. Like what, what he did and who you are in him. Well, I just started listening him out. Meaning you're pure before God always and connected to God. That's what he did, if you realize that. You're a citizen of heaven and you have an eternal nature. And that eternal nature will be in heaven with God. You have a better covenant. You have a better high priest. You have a better sacrifice for sin. You are a new temple. And you have direct guidance from God, i.e. the Holy Spirit. And you have a new personhood and you have continual coaching to live it out throughout the rest of your life so total security why would you look to hopeless things things that serve a purpose that's not there why look for the lesser version the copy of or the shadow why would you not look to those things so he's asking them a hard question if you realize this why then go there and, and, and what he's ultimately saying is you're degrading your, uh, your promise that you've been given and how you'll live it out to the shadow lands. You're downgrading it. You're living at a level God has not called you to live in, and you're hoping in something that is no longer there to save. That's what he's saying to them. To us, we can translate it differently. Your religious practices, as great as they are, are not your salvation, so you cannot hope in them. I love it that you're here today. I love it when, when we're here every Sunday and we're here as a body or in any gathering that we do together, but it doesn't save you. I, 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 I love all the things that you read your Bible every day. It does not save you. If you pray every day, it will not save you. What saves you is faith in those promises that were delivered to you in the actual work, the only work done for your salvation, not by you whatsoever, but only by Jesus who did the work. That's what saves you. But you're degrading the way you're going to live out this salvation by going back to shadow things, putting faith in religious practices that will not save you. They just can only enhance you, but we cannot trust them. Even worse, putting it into sin and hoping that its fruit will make you happy, which it will never do that, ever. It's like, it's like, it's like giving up a wonderful meal for a crumb. This wonderful banquet is waiting for you. For a crumb. It's so short-sighted. When we get in these places, we have to fight against that. 
that there's a wonderful meal, a banquet that we've been invited to. I, when, I, when I cook in my house, like we, Ann and I have a rotation. She cooks, it's very efficient. I cook, it's extravagant and rare. Do you know what Dads, we like this. And so they always know when I'm cooking because it's been going for two and a half hours. And they're just like, when's dinner? I'm like, nine o'clock tonight. <laughs> it's bad. They hate it when I cook. But they love it. They hate it, though. And I'll see them while I'm cooking. And they'll come downstairs. And they'll reach up. And they'll grab, like, some chips. And I'm like, why are you eating chips? Do you not see what's happening here? The love that I'm putting into this. The food you're going to eat. You're going to love this. It's your favorite meal. Chips? Why? And they'll come back and the half of the bag will be gone. I'm like, you're not even going to want to eat this meal. We, are, uh, we have to be challenged in this way to just don't settle for crumbs. Those, those are crumbs. They'll make you feel good for a minute, but they're temporal. Why not enjoy the meal? There's a really interesting example of this. And it's, I would say, like last week, we talked about typography. This, this, this scenario that happened in real life that actually is an example of that, 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 that like, um, we can experience later in the New Testament, right? And so we talked about many of them. One of them is interesting about the struggle, and it's the struggle of Jacob and Esau. Esau has the birthright of Abraham, the blessing that seems to be like everything he touched turned to gold. God's favor was on him, and he had the first right of, and he had half of everything that was given, and he had the authority of his father as the birthright firstborn. And he gave it all up because he was famished and he was hungry, and Jacob said, I'll give you the stew for that birthright. And he said, give me the stew. This is what he's talking about. Why to these people? Why give it up? Everything that you've been given for that. If you don't know the story of Jacob and Esau, and, 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 and you're more of like, this is new to me, in the movie The Matrix, there's a character named Cypher who is unplugged from The Matrix, has freedom, autonomy, is living, and at one point decides, I'd rather have The Matrix. And it's a pivotal moment in the movie where you're like, I choose this fake has nothing, it's not reality over reality. And I'll suffer in that misery, or at least think I'm happy in it. It's the same type of scenario that these people are struggling with and we can in our own life. He gives three wake-up calls and then a closing theological statement. Wake-up call number one comes in Hebrews 8, 13. And I mean wake-up calls, not like a warning. Oh, my watch is telling me to stop, but I ain't going to stop. Okay. <laughs> wake-up call number one. It's a war- It's not a warning. It's a. It's it's the strongest he makes statements, meaning like, don't be a fool type of statement. Like this is the reality type of statement. Hebrews eight thirteen. In speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. Now they are teetering on going back to the covenant that was established by Moses. If you, if you don't know this, they would sacrifice. They would do the whole ritual. They would they would. Uh, go, go and sacrifice for their sins. And he's saying, <laughs> if you're putting your trust in that, it's obsolete. It won't even do what you're thinking it's going to do because the greatest has come. So don't do it. He makes it obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. This, this, this covenant was, 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 uh, is facilitated by human 
human ability. It was your ability to uphold that covenant. This covenant God gave, the new one, is his ability and faithfulness to uphold it. It's heaven's covenant. It's much better. And the other one is void. It's obsolete. That's a theological bombshell to them, maybe not to you. But to them, probably ruffled a few feathers. A couple of people got up and said, hey, I'm a big giver here. I'm leaving. You're going to regret saying this is a church problem. But he's ultimately saying putting hope in earthly copies can't last. And putting hope in a new covenant that comes from an eternal source lasts. Hebrews 9.11. This is the second one. When, but when Christ appeared as the high priest of good things that are to come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, heavens, tabernacle, not made by man's hands, that is, not of this creation that you are all trying to practice. This is the greater version. He entered once and for all. This kind of broke their brains because they were used to this ritual. Into the holy places. Not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal salvation because that secured your forgiveness and salvation so you could live in the presence of God freely, which they couldn't do. It's done, it's finished, and it's final. And if it's in final in heaven, it's final. Last wake-up call to them was Hebrews 10, 14. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's your trust. By a single offering. This rock their world. They're always looking to purchase the goat, to purchase the dove, to offer the grain. By a single offering. God did what you could not do could never do, and he did it for all time. You have total security for the believer. And and I would say this, is he's driving the point home, there is nowhere else to look. (laughs) I ain't done. It's 1055. Uh, There's nowhere else to look. And I think that that's kind of his point. You're looking other places, there's nowhere else to look. Okay, take religion off the table. I, I, I can find a level of security, hope, and salvation that will hopefully last me my whole life. But it, when you die and it withers away and it gets squandered by the relatives, it, 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 it's like there's not hope in that. You just, you just had an easier life maybe. Okay, well, what if I put my hope in this, this person that's going to make me so happy? And, and, and they're going to make me feel secure. They're going to, yeah, that's a codependent relationship, by the way. But still, they're going to do it all for me. And, but there's nothing there. There's nowhere else to look for the hope that Jesus has to offer. Nowhere. Nothing is what he's trying to really drive home. And then his closing theological statement that now begins to to, to make the, the, the clearest statement of everything he's been saying throughout the previous chapters and then closes where he starts to invite us into this process. Hebrews 10, 19. You will know one of these verses as a very famous one. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, listen to the words. I think I highlighted them up here. Since, since meaning we know, 
It's a reality. It's a truth. Since we have confidence. Confidence meaning the thing that gives us freedom. That we can rest easy. To enter the holy places. Not only did Jesus do that. But we enter that place in the presence of God. By the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. Which is that through his flesh. Verse 21, since we have a great priest over the house of God, not serving the house of God, over the house of God, this priest who would, is the one to represent us is to stand for us. Let us again draw near with a true heart of full assurance of what? Good works? Ability? Birthright? Faith. It's all faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean, I love these descriptors, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast, meaning with everything you got. When your world is blowing apart, everything you got. When you start to doubt whether God is real, everything you got. When you wonder why Jesus didn't deliver in the way he did for you in your prayer, everything you got. When, when, you're, when your mind is just overwhelmed, everything you got. When you heard something that, that, uh, that was like uh, interesting enough that got your attention to wonder if faith is even good for you, everything you got, you got to hold tight. We live in that world now. And let us hold fast with our confession or with a hope, uh, sorry, of our hope without wavering. It says, for he who promised is faithful. And why? For means because he who promised it's faithful. Hold fast. I've had people break promises to me. I've broken promises. God does not break promises. It's not in his nature. It's not, it's not at all the essence of who he is. But we break promises. And so he's saying, he does not break this promise. Hold Fast. And let us consider how to, here we go, this is where we're coming in. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting the meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day draw near. I, listen, you got to know this is the church. Hope needs help. There are times when I've been so down and I've gone to somebody in this church or a couple people in this church and I was like, I'm really struggling. I don't know. I don't, I'm having a hard time. Sometimes I've, I've, even th I've even had these struggles and I've gone to people and said, I don't even know if I should be a pastor anymore. I'm struggling right now. I'm, I'm, I'm questioning this part right now in my life. And that's hard to say. But I'm a human being. But I hold fast. And that's what I was encouraged by by this person. Hold fast. You're kind of getting off in the weeds in your head. You're overthinking this. Hold fast. We need each other that way. Church isn't a box we check. It's a lifeline. <laughs> there are, I can't tell you how many people who come into church and have said, I needed this today. Not from what I said. From what they got from the church. From what they felt from the church. How they experienced the church. I was asking 
Victor and Martha, right, since you're here. It's like, how, how, how did you end up coming to the church? He said, we went to this one church. Can I say this? I'm already saying it, so you can't say anything against it. <laughs> went to this one church, and then, and then and they were just talking about, like, basically fire, hell, and brimstone. And then, and, and then, and then talking about how all the other churches do it wrong, which is always <laughs> wonderful to do. <laughs> it's not biblical. Okay, so the, then they went back again, and they were doing it again. And they're like, you know what? we got to find another church. And what they said, and I, I was just on the tip of my chair going, and, and, and then what did you love about the church when you came in? And you know what I didn't hear? I heard a great sermon that week. You know what I didn't hear? Oh, worship was wonderful. You know what I heard? The community was very loving and kind. And we liked it. That's, that's the power of a, of a church body. And so if they're ever down, they know where to come. If they're struggling, they know where to go. If I'm struggling, I know where to go. And we are, and this is why he says this at the end, because he can't be writing letters all the time. They need to encourage each other. They need to be honest and vulnerable and real and say, listen, this is where I'm at. I'm struggling. So they can stir up. And remind them of this eternal truth that they possess, that they can hold fast when they're in a real tailspin in life. That's the function of the body of the church. I think sometimes we do struggle. We run. We have setbacks. We feel ashamed. We are sad. And we can feel total despair like these people here. And he's saying, I can write you a letter, but your church can love you a lot more. But you have to bring it. Now, sometimes I know that doesn't work. I don't know if you've ever been hurt by someone in the church, but they can hurt. And if you're vulnerable with someone in the church, they can rip your heart out. Do you know what I'm talking about? Huh. Everybody's so quiet. <laughs> this is for real. You know why I know your head nods don't agree with what I'm saying, uh, with my facts? is because I've heard a lot of the stories from you. And so it, it's real. That church hurt me. That person did this to me. That, pas that pastor did that. And I know because it's real and it's hard to be honest. It's hard to be vulnerable. So we'd rather just disappear and not go to the church anymore. We're, that's where our help is. That's where we need to be stirred up to be reminded of this eternal reality that these people are struggling with here. So he's saying, don't turn to me, turn to each other. I had this happen to me once. I went to a boss of mine. I was working 90 hours a week at a whopping $35,000 a year. It was fantastic. Oh, the experience is what they kept telling me I was getting. And, um, <laughs> and, and uh, uh, I was running, uh, it was crazy. I was working in one of these big churches, and I was running a ministry of 800 students and, and, and facilitating a staff of, uh, uh, of 15 people and then 40 interns. And I was making $35,000 a year, and I could barely make it. And my house, could barely make my house payment. And... I went to my boss and I said, I, I, I literally am, I have an ulcer. I, I, I went to the doctor. I'm stressed. I'm struggling. Uh, my family life is not doing good. I don't see my kids. And you know what he told me? He said, well, you just need to pray for more faith. And I was like, <laughs> I didn't pray for more faith. I prayed for another job and I got it. So it was like, <laughs> it, it worked out. It was great. <laughs> yeah. But that, that hurt me. It hurt me like, oh, man. Like that, that, but I didn't walk away going, I hate church, and I don't want ever want to be in ministry again because of that experience. What I did is I had people around me in my church community that, that, that fanned the flame of, like, Ryan, th th there's more here. There's more for you. 
you, 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 you need to know that you have, some, you have something you got to hang on to. Don't just quit. Don't just give it up. Don't put it all on the church or that person. You've got more. Push past this. That's what our church community is for. Our vulnerability with our community, it, it, that's what will bring the encouragement we need that we so desperately want, but we can't vocalize the issue. And so to our church, yes, the worst thing you could do is hear somebody's vulnerability and struggle and gossip about it. You, I don't know how God views that, but I know that it, it, it's, it, it's a disgraceful behavior for a believer to do that to another person struggling. So don't ever do it. Don't, don't, don't do disgraceful things. Allow someone to be open. It's, it, it's, it's, it's not Christ-like at all when you're, we're judging someone based on their outward appearance. You never did that. Not Christ-like at all when we're judging somebody based on their uh, social economical status, their race, or anything. It's not Christ-like at all. It's contrary to what Jesus did. So don't do those things. And, and, and allow people to be vulnerable in front of you without judging them. And saying, wow, I, it must be really hard. I get it. A little empathy in church would go a long ways for vulnerability. And so what he's saying is, don't turn against each other. Turn towards each other. Because I'm not going to write a Hebrews part two. You need each other. And so the encouragement is, as he's establishing his theologically rich themes to establish their faith, now you need each other to help each other when you're struggling with it. So turn to each other in that. I think our openness is that helps uh, others remind us again. Uh, the Ecclesiastes says two are better than one, and there's a reason for that. When one goes down, the other pulls them up. And, and I wrote this out, and I want to try to say it right, so I'll read it. Our church community helps us in our eternal reality before God. That's what they do. And encourages us during the struggle with the shadow land promises and the lies and the deceits of sin's painful fruit. Our church community helps us in that we have to turn to each other god loves honesty he loves daylight he loves sanitizing hidden 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 things that we're afraid to say and speak out loud our church community should love daylight and turn to each other when we're struggling when we're having a hard time with our faith i know many of you have been very open with us about it where, and, and, and I hope you felt care and loved and not judged and thinking. I've had people say, like, I had a guy, I'm not, I'm not going to lie. He called me and said, I don't believe exactly everything that you're teaching. I'm struggling with this about Jesus. And he said, I just wanted to ask for permission if I could still come to the church. And I laughed out loud on the phone. I said, what? Of course, you're the one to be there. I want you there. He goes, I love the community. I love all these other aspects of it. It makes my heart full. And I love the concept of God. And, and I think that he's bigger. I'm half struggling with Jesus a little bit. You're, thank you for that call. Thank you for telling me that and not just disappearing. I thanked him profusely for it because people just disappear and say, I must not be good enough. Never, ever do that. The vulnerability and the openness and the non-judgmental attitude of believers towards each other will fan the flame, stir each other up to hang on. Uh, let's bow our heads and we'll close. There's two things you can walk away with is, is this, is putting our faith in any human effort, structure, ritual, or eternal salvation that is not God, not through Christ, is empty and hopeless. And it will only be through your work that gets you there. 
in any other religion. Study them all. It will be by your efforts that get you there. It will not be by faith alone. And it will not be by someone who forgave your sins, past, present, future, and any that you will commit. And the second thing is we need our church community to help us in our struggles to trust what we trust them with what we fully can't see. And it's really hard when we're in the fog of war and life, but help them help let them help you. Remember the eternal reality in the midst of your carnal struggle. That you can hang on, hold fast to this reality that is bigger than what you can see, but it is true. So let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you so much for what the writer in Hebrews was making this massive effort to try to get them to see what they were forgetting. God, I pray that you, with anybody in here who has been struggling with that reality, that, that they've got to go, they go back to the religious practices that save them, that they can't just fully trust that you got it, that they can't accept your grace fully because they feel guilty. God, that they, they move past all of that and find freedom and the confidence of their salvation, and that they can boldly approach you, God. No matter what in the world has happened, they draw near. And God, I pray that we are a church that welcomes those who struggle, welcomes those, those who voice their fear, voice their doubt, voice their struggle, even voice their sins. And that, God, we can love them the way you loved people when they came to you. God, we are all sinners. We, we were sinners before you even thought the plan of salvation, God. We were unworthy and you made us worthy. So God, help us give the same grace, pay it forward to the same, in the same way. And so we can become the church. There's a light on a hill that people don't just drive by and say, those people are horrible people, but God, that there are people that will love and care and nurture for me no matter what my life looks like. Help us be a people of grace. We'll leave the judgment to you. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me this last song?